Hey everybody, it's Christine. Welcome to The Rose Woman. If you're a person who is entranced by science, by all of the miraculous little details at the nano level, at the molecular level, at the macro level, of how all of the systems of nature work, how the engineered technologies that we manage to piece together from natural components work, or if you're somebody who is intrigued by emergent creation, by how there can be a blank sheet of paper, and then six months later, an object, and 12 months later, a community, and years later, an industry, and years after that, us, that blank sheet of paper has turned into something that's changed society completely. If you're interested in that, emerging creativity, or if you're just somebody who likes knowing stuff, who appreciates others and can fall into the dance of their mind and what they see and likes to keep abreast of a lot of, of, of different things that are happening in the world just because it brings you joy, if any of those things are true, and if you're curious about the future of the biological sciences in particular and how it affects our human bodies, then you are going to love our guest today, Jane Metcalf. Jane's an exceptional woman. She is uh, known for her founding of Wired Magazine, uh, which was the paper of record, the, the magazine of record for the digital revolution, the dot-com era, etc., documenting and predicting the vast changes that would happen with the emerging digital technologies that she was uh, covering. She is talking to us today, however, because she has her pulse on the next big generational shift in technology, and that is the biological revolution. And her company, Neolife, is looking at the people and the companies and the discoveries that will determine the future of our, our human bodies and the lives we live in these human bodies. Things like longevity, uh, reproduction, uh, genetic medicine, etc. We go a lot of places in this interview from gender medicine to CRISPR to books we like, uh, science fiction, etc. So let us drop in and enjoy Jane Metcalf. Femme Extraordinaire. I'm so happy today to welcome to the Rose Woman Pod, Jane Metcalf. I can't tell you exactly when I first was introduced to her, but it was many, many years ago. And I remember being completely impressed by her poise and candor and intelligence, and later found out that she was the founder of Wired Magazine. I'd love to hear from Jane who has now moved on to studying neobiologics or the new sciences of life and founded a company called Neolife about where she's at in the world and what she's learning around all of the topics of such interest to us, life, longevity, sexuality, reproduction, et cetera. I'm sure we're gonna cover a lot of ground, but first just please welcome to the pod, Jane Metcalf. Hi. So hi, Jane. How are hi. you today? Hi, Christine. <laughs> I am so good. And I'm so good for two reasons. First of all, I adore you. I just, you're so wise and so insightful and beautiful and sensual. And you're such a badass businesswoman. Um, but on top of that, I just totally love the fact that on your podcasting platform, your name comes up, Christine, mm, 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 which is just like perfect. It just makes me so happy. <laughs> well, it's actually Christine Marie Mason and it was McCall at one point. So it was just initials, but yes. Mm. Mm, I will forever think of you as Christine. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so how did you get to be such a smarty pants? How do you see, <laughs> in advance of what the rest of the world sees, things like Wired? you want to tell a little bit about that story first, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, 
I, I remember an astrologist told me when we were starting Wired that um, that I didn't belong where I grew up. She said, you, you never really belonged um, anywhere. You were sort of born into the wrong family. She's like, you don't really fit in. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that what this is called? I'm not sure. But um, I tell you the way it happened. And I, I wasn't really aware of that. Um, I just knew that I was I, I, I had a whole big world to see and discover. But um, I ended up in Amsterdam uh, because I fell in love with my partner, Louis, and moved there to be with him. And we were publishing a magazine called Electric Word, which was covering all these advanced technologies for essentially human computer interaction. And it was everything from optical character recognition and speech synthesis, you know, to like word processing and desktop publishing and um, storage and indexing and archiving of, of massive amounts of information. And so we're in um, Amsterdam and, you know, Philips and Sony were head to head in consumer electronics and they started digitizing all these data forms. It was like compact disc audio, and then it was compact disc video, and then it was compact disc interactive. And we just started to see how everything was going digital. And um, I guess, you know, just reading a lot of science fiction at the time, including William Gibson and Neil Stevenson, um, you know, the leap to understanding how the specific technologies that we were covering we're going to be um, escaping, you know, from the labs and making their way into our day-to-day -day lives. And then just, you know, taking the time to imagine how that would change us. And I guess I was always amazed that other people didn't take the time to think it through. And I, I'm still amazed by that, to be honest with you. I think that it must be my life's work. It's like, you all see the same things I do. How, how come not everybody is asking the same questions or as curious as I am about how this all plays out. Well, I think that's amazing that you're connecting it back to the science fiction writing because it isn't every, people don't ask that question, but science fiction writers also are catching the sniff of what's coming in the future and then elaborating narrative around it. And to the extent that they do that and they can make it tangible for others, they're also instrumental in that actually outpicturing so there was totally. a the Science Fiction Writers Association, I think, issued a press release apologizing for the fact that they hadn't <laughs> imagined more utopian future. Uh, so so in a way, this this gift that you're talking about to be able to see it, catch it, synthesize it and make it understandable puts you right in that realm, except that you're doing it in a nonfiction way for the most part. Right, exactly. I mean, nice. that's really interesting that, that science fiction writers should apologize. I mean. They have nothing to apologize for because up until recently, it was their job to just, you know, tell great stories about technology. Um, you know, it, it's only like in the last 10 years that, you know, design thinking has come to rely so heavily on the pictures that science fiction world builders create for us. And I think they're only now realizing how responsible they are for the world that gets built. Um, you know, I think... Telling a good story requires drama and conflict. You know, it's really not about painting a rosy picture of the future. It's, you know, it's uh, it's the struggle. It's the it's the character flaw. It's the you know our our base humanity that um, that propels storytelling. We just don't have a tradition of um, storytelling based on happy visions of the future. I mean, maybe other cultures do. I was I've been thinking a lot about. Um, Native American indigenous cultures um, and thinking, I wonder if they have that storytelling tradition. But um, yeah, I, you don't, know. I don't know about about that, whether they're looking out in the future. What What is interesting is the how well, there's ecotopia. I think there's a few future science fiction optimism driven narratives, but you're getting at a really interesting question because the, the technologies that are being laid out are increasingly powerful and asynchronous. But a lot of times the human spirit, the struggles that we have, jealousy, grief, anger, mm. greed, all of that stuff, that doesn't seem to evolve that much in 2000 years in the future. <laughs> you know? So, it's true. so the, this sort of the question of like the human OS 
is, um, you know, incrementally changing. I've seen some studies recently that the brain is actually getting more capacious and certain components are responding, neuroplasticity kind of studies, but that we're not uh, following Moore's law as a species and while the technology is getting exponentially intense. And so I think it is hard to imagine how we would uh, create a society that has both of those things true at the same time. I, I, I subscribe to the concept of humans, um, you know, constantly evolving for the better. And I do think that our societies and our civilizations have um, socialized us to be much more concerned about the fate of the other. You know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the haves and have nots and, you know, the capitalist market and how that drives, you know, individual desire over, you know, group um, solutions. But if you actually look at history, uh, I think that we are far less violent uh, and, and ultimately less selfish as a species uh, today than we've been in the past. Maybe not among, you know, within our own tribe or within our own family, but writ large, uh, I think there's far less kind of meeting base needs at the expense of the other today than there has been in the past. And, you know, I, I actually think that the rise of things like meditation, you know, is leading to a global consciousness that I've, I'm excited by. I think they're mm. simultaneously powerful forces like capitalism um, that at times uh, put us at odds with that. But I, I do think we're getting better as a species. I do think we're evolving. You, you would be in good company. I, I mean, Stephen Pinker wrote that landmark book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and right. pointed a, a lot of, out a lot of data in that. But your larger point that your the sort of evolution of human consciousness to more of a singularity um, is supported by a lot of integral um, ecology thinkers, a lot of integral spiritual mm -hmm. thinkers, where they say that the universe is intentionally in, it complexifies and complexifies and complexifies to the point where it, you know, human consciousness becomes a singularity also. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, it will happen soon that we'll all really uh, sink into this sense of being deeply interconnected. I think that's the reality. But that's a really good lead into what you're doing now, you know, with Neolife. So I feel like that conversation on the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of the species is a really nice lead in to what you're doing now with Neolife. And I think that warrants a, a full introduction. So could you tell our listeners about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I one of the best ways to describe what I see is to connect it back to the digital revolution. And, you know, we got um, very focused on how the world was going to change because of digital and network technologies, but it was all very external. It's how is it going to change our work? How is it going to change our education? How is it going to change our uh, democracy? How is it going to change our media and entertainment and, um, you know, how would it create a new sense of community? But it stopped short of visualizing how it would transform our bodies. And what's been happening um, basically since we sequenced the human genome and launched the iPhone, um, what's been happening now is the digital revolution is turning into internal. And we are bringing this mentality of, you know, engineering everything to engineering our own biology. And we now have the opportunity and the power to manipulate things at the molecular level. We can see it at the molecular level and we can change it at the molecular level. And, you know, that gives us just mind blowing opportunities to intervene uh, in the course of normal disease and in the course of normal evolution. And, you know, I came to this realization in the sort of backhanded way. Um, you know, I was, uh, after Wired, I invested in some startup companies, including a chocolate company. <laughs> and through a series of, of funny and, and strange um, coincidences, I ended up um, as president of the company. And during that time, I started thinking about food as medicine, um, food as a um, nootropic. So for instance, how could we use chocolate to enhance our focus? How could we use it to enhance our sense of well-being? 
Um, and then I came across all sorts of really interesting research around, um, you know, the International Headache Society was looking at it as a way to prevent migraines. Uh, there were studies using uh, chocolate in Alzheimer's disease. And then the very famous one in Sweden uh, showing that 50 milligrams a day of dark chocolate had cardioprotective effects for um, heart attack victims. Um, and I started thinking about um, agriculture and how agriculture was changing with technology, you know, smart sensors and um, tracing, food tracing. Um, so I was thinking about all of these things when my parents got hit with a double whammy of um, mental illness and cognitive decline. And suddenly I began, suddenly I was thrown into the medical system. And it's sort of like being a parent. You're either in the parenting club or you're not. And if you're not, you don't realize how big the club is. <laughs> but as soon as you're inducted in, your whole life changes. And I think it's that way with our medical system. You know, if you're not involved and engaged with it, you don't think too much of about it. But as soon as you do engage, it's such a shit show. It's such a horrendous waste of resources and such a horrifying um, miasma of conflicting interests. And, uh, you know, with, with greater investment and declining uh, results, it's just ripe for innovation. And a dear friend of mine, uh, Daniel Kraft at Singularity University, was hosting a conference that I attended that um, was a bunch of MDs and PhDs. And I intended to go and lurk in the background <laughs> to see what I could learn about state-of-the-art of neuroscience. Um, what could we learn about schizophrenia and mental health? You know, what were the tools and um, latest research around Alzheimer's and dementia? Um, and I was just going to, you know, absorb whatever I could. And instead, I had this total epiphany. And I felt like the days of like Macworld in 1992 or three, when we took our kind of idea for Wired and our understanding of the way human computer interaction was advancing, and then met all these extraordinary, brilliant, creative people who had these passionate visions for making the future better using digital technology. And that was like 1992, flash forward to whatever, 2015, and all of a sudden, I'm feeling goosebumps. You know, as a journalist, as a storyteller, you don't really ever imagine the story of our lifetime landing in your lap for a second time. But that's how it felt. It was like we were there at the advent of the digital revolution. And suddenly, I found myself in the room at the dawn of what I now call the neobiological revolution, which is how these technologies will transform um, us, how we manage disease, how we manage our own health and wellness. And ultimately, you know, with the advent of CRISPR and gene editing technologies, how we will transform, you know, our own, our own bloodlines, our own germlines, our own species. That's a beautiful description of the state of what's happening now. I, as you were talking, I was wondering what your taxonomy is for dividing up those technologies, like what came to mind for me was, oh, there's the sort of diagnostic components of technologies. There's the behavioral and systemic modification uh, that comes through my iPhone and my apps and my Aura Ring, by the way, which I got because of you. Oh, um, excellent. It's amazing. Um, or the stuff that is real-time manipulation, then even some of the things that are long arc gene editing in in vivo fetuses and stuff like do you have a, a way that you put a framework around how those technologies touch different phases of our of our society and ourselves um let's see a different framework well i guess um i i, I see it as an evolution so i see it um primarily as um data collection right so so digital technologies have enabled us to see things we could never see before. So imaging technologies, for instance, um, which allow us to visualize the brain at the level of individual neurons and you know, computational models that allow us to envision how a memory um, actually moves through the brain, like what different parts of not just everyone's brain, but your brain, you know, um, either a 
functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, or you know, with these um, advanced and increasingly inexpensive um, uh, EEG caps uh, with sensors, you know, we can see inside the brain. And that allows us to understand things on a whole new level. Um, we have sensors throughout our bodies. You know, my contact lens can have a sensor. My aura ring, you know, is sensing five different uh, biometrics from me. You know, babies have sensors in their diapers. Um, you know, there's there's sensors everywhere feeding us information about our own bodies, but about the environment around us. So, you know, as we've all learned during the wildfires, you know, um, we can now see all of the different things that we're breathing and experiencing. And um, that generates just huge amounts of data that because we have these huge data sets and because we have ever increasing um, processing power uh, and, you know, the, the technologies of machine learning and neural networks, um, we can now process all this data in ways that gives us new understandings of what's happening that allow us to predict what's going to happen. And so, you know, yes, diagnostics, um, you know, yes, treatments, but I think the really big transformational opportunity here is being able to predict what's going to happen with your particular disease um, in, in specific terms or, you know, your life and health span in more general terms. Um, you know, we can look at um, epigenetic testing, which is now available to consumers through a variety of different services that can actually um, track your, your biological clock. How are you aging? What are the epigenetic factors? What are the environmental factors? What are the endogenous and exogenous factors that are um, impacting your aging? And what are the ways that you can intervene to stop or reverse that? Um, so, you know, when we talk about gene editing, it's, it's interesting that I think the first applications are for um, monogenetic diseases. So if you have Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis or beta thalassemia, um, you know, these are monogenetic diseases where, you know, one edit to your genome to remove that mutation, you know, prevents you from getting that disease. That's huge. Um, you know, that would be considering bringing you from below a baseline of health up to, you know, healthy, right? The next edit beyond that would be making you healthier. So uh, if there was something that would impede my motor development that we could then um, remove so that my motor development is normal, can we also tinker with that in a way that would make my motor development better? Uh, you know, these are the kinds of questions that, that come along. So in other words, enhancement. Um, and then, you know, the ultimate crazy stuff, which is, give me capabilities I wouldn't otherwise have. Um, so, you know, I guess the answer is I have a lot of different taxonomies <laughs> for thinking about this. No, I love those. And and even within that, I mean, there's a lot of language you're using that I don't think has really made it into the popular expression yet. So even things like uh, the epigenetic, uh, the relationship between epigenetics and your aging, for example, could we, could we dive in a little bit there and just talk about what what we're learning on assessing how we're aging and then what kind of interventions you're seeing now out in the market related to that? Sure. Um, so, you know, you're born with the genome that comes, you know, half from uh, your mother and half from your father. Um, but there's, you also inherit an epigenome, uh, which is something that we've only recently discovered. Um, epigenetics are the chemical transformations that take place on your DNA that um, impact the expression of your genes. So it's how does your lived experience and your environment um, impact your genes and how do those genes then transform your health? Um, so you can be born healthy, but um, live in a place that's um, full of toxins, for instance. Uh, or you could uh, introduce those toxins yourself through, you know, poor diet or um, smoking or excessive drinking or other drugs use, um, what have you. You know, we've learned um, in recent decades that we can actually inherit an epigenome uh, back a, a few generations. Um, so trauma is something that is passed along 
that transforms, you know, it can transform my genome in an epigenetic way. I can pass that on to my children and even to my grandchildren. So there've been studies around um, in Holland, uh, sol- uh, uh, pe- people who were um, starving during World War II under the German occupation um, have transformed, that transformed their genome, which they then, that DNA was passed on to their children and even their grandchildren. So we see it with with nutritional trauma, we see it with smoking, uh, and we see it with um, PTSD. So your epigenome uh, is something that can be traced and tracked. Um, you know, what are ways to combat that? Oh, there's many. Um, you know, there's meditation for, uh, you know, stress relief. Um, there are, I think at this point, very few, uh, to be really honest with you, but a lot of this is still understanding how those um, those chemical changes take place and what kind of interventions there might be beyond um, the obvious ones uh, to remediate it. But you know, in terms of longevity, there's there's a lot of compounds, molecules, you know, drugs that people are looking at. Um, a lot of which have been shown to be successful in mice. And then, of course, the next thing you have to say is that, but we are not very much like mice. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there are, I forget whether it's five or seven, you know, traditional ways of enhancing your longevity. You know, it's like eat right, exercise, sleep well, reduce your stress. Um, I don't know, love more, you know, have connection to community and and others. And it really comes back to that again and again and again and again. And those are incredibly powerful. You know, there's a lot of research um, and a lot of talk about research that would enable us to live to be, you know, 150 or 250 or or become immortal. You know, I don't really see evidence of that. What I do see evidence of, however, is um, interventions that we can all do now that could enable us all to live to be 100 to 125. So I think that is within our power. And I'm, I'm practicing a lot of those um, today. And, you know, but it's all around sleeping better, eating better, managing my stress, getting enough um, physical exercise and, and enough love and connection to other people to, to feed my genome, my epigenome and my soul. Yeah, I love that, that the soul the soul, not scientifically measurable at this point yet, um, mm-hmm. gets included in there. I mean, that sounds a lot like the blue zone stuff, but we can go back. We can talk about that in a minute. There's that when you're talking about, I want to understand one technical thing on the epigene. So I heard someone say once that uh, your epigenetic transmission is everything that's happened to you in your lifetime up until the time you conceive your child. They get that. But then I wonder... So if I was to look at your epigene uh, before you started meditating, before you started doing trauma recovery work, before you started eating right, uh, and then I looked at it again a decade later, what is what are you reading in there that says that the epigene's been transformed? What are they looking at? Um, well, this is a level of technical specificity I should probably leave to people who have studied this uh, more in depth, but it is it's the it's the methylation. So it is the way that the um, nucleotides are being transformed uh, by chemistry. And that's as far as I should go. <laughs> um, okay, fine. Yeah. I have more technical questions for you. You can keep taking the fifth, but <laughs> <laughs> like I have another technical question, Jane, which is around this thing. Like if I have a, what did you call it? A monogenetic disease. If yes. I have that and I'm already born I'm already alive as an adult human. Does that something that can be edited when you're already a grown person, or does it have to be edited in the in the in vivo in the fetus? That's a really good question, and I have asked this question as well. And it depends on what it is that um, that you're trying to uh, correct for. So um, it de- and it also depends on how many genes would be required to um, correct it. So, for instance. You know, you can extract blood, you can go get the cell, and you can transform the nucleus, uh, the DNA inside the nucleus of the cell. And in some cases, 
uh, and unfortunately I can't tell you which ones, but in some cases, just injecting that a few cells back into your body can solve the problem. In other cases, the volume of corrected cells that would be required to be injected back into your body is so great that it is un, um, unreasonable, not, um, not practical, not, um, not theoretically possible. Uh, and then there are uh, genetic corrections that can only be done um, in an embryo to prevent the disease from happening in the first place. So it really depends on what it is that you're trying to address. So what now we're seeing some glimpses into what's technically possible. And I know this is a, contra a controversial way to view things, but you might not know this, that I've been in this PhD program in religion and philosophy. And one of my subjects lately is integral ecology. And inside of that, we're reverting back to Lovelock on Gaia theory, nice. which is you know, when it came out, he was basically ostracized by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. And now you have uh, our friend David Ewing Duncan working with Craig Venter on a book that basically says of it's 100 percent true. The biota, uh, the, there is biota in the space in between us. It's in the air and that humans are uh, biota on the Earth's ecosystem, that it's a singular um, entity. And so the theory is getting a lot, not only in that environment, but in other environments that, you know, we're part of Gaia, we're not individuals. Mm -hmm. And that, and within that, the idea that the human species is in and of itself a networked organism, not us as individuals, although we think that about ourselves. So now you go in and you start cr crispering up uh, bits of our genetic heritage, inheritance and our future uh, without understanding the system in which it's nested, and that even though it might have a, a bad outcome for an individual actor in the system, there might be some long arc or collective adaptive trait to that. And mm -hmm. we haven't done a very good job as a as a culture and understanding how you pull one lever over here and it has unintended mm. consequences over there. Mm. So I'm just wondering like, what you're seeing in the scientific community as they start dropping in and editing genes, just like in the GMO environment on food supply, where is the dialogue happening around the long arc impacts of these micro switches going on and off? Oh, that's such an important question. And, you know, the good news is there are conversations happening all over the scientific community on this topic. And, you know, outsiders who don't understand, you know, how science is made which I considered myself an outsider completely. I mean, just because I was in the tech world doesn't mean I understood science at all. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not saying that as if everyone should, but, um, but let me just say everyone should because <laughs> science is really important and um, understanding how it happens is really important. And, you know, the scientific community are um, excited in equal parts alarmed by, you know, gene editing technology. You know, it is, it's a dream come true if you are um, a researcher, you know, trying to prevent, you know, Huntington's disease. You know, if you're a doctor trying to treat people, patients with this, you know, the idea that we could eliminate these diseases entirely is, is a dream come true. I mean, it's like, what more would you want for the human race than, you know, to, to eliminate these um, horrific inherited um, conditions? Um, but the CRISPR community, in fact, Jennifer Doudna, Let's just take a minute for women winning the Nobel Prize in chemistry. How exciting was that to see the um, original Amazing. inventors and discoverers of, you know, the CRISPR gene editing technology winning the Nobel Prize to women. Amazing. This was a big year. They also, uh, it was also the Nobel Prize in physics and yep. in literature. So we yes. had a good year. A really good year. You know, actually, I, I think we are on track to becoming a matriarchy. This is a little bit of an aside, but, you know, I just see women rising everywhere. And I see them really not just, you know, batting down their sexual harassers and their, um, you know, the, the, the source of uh, pay inequality and, and so forth. But I really see women grabbing their power and not looking back. And it's really thrilling. I mean, I look at my daughter and, you know, for her, these things are, um, they're, they're not just givens. Um, she deserves everything uh, 
that she gets and everything else just doesn't exist. It's just, I don't know. I, I, and seeing, you know, the rest of the world responding to women taking their power is incredibly exciting. I'd have, I would, I've never heard anyone say the, like something like a parentocracy or like a unionocracy. Like there's been no sort of description of what it would look like if we had sort of a, an equal combination of strength and receptivity, you know, in that took the best of both and, mm -hmm. and, and combined it. There's, there, I don't like polarization in general mm. as a concept, but I would love a word for that. <laughs> Google. Google. I want to talk a little bit about like you've had a really nice uh, set of articles around uh, parenting, child rearing, uh, women's biology, sexuality. Like you've covered a lot of the topics that are in overlap with our core business or our core area of interest. And I wonder if you have anything you'd like to share around women's biology or women's cycles or anything like that or sexuality that has been surprising to you in in doing new life. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, you know, one of the first things that I realized is that when people talk about women's health, they are really only talking about women's reproductive health and it's a real Ooh. problem. Yeah. And, um, it's a problem on so many levels because it's like when you were born, you're just as a woman, you're just waiting until you get your, your menses, you know, it's like, your whole life seems to be gearing up until the moment when you start menstruating. And I remember thinking, why does that have to be the case? And I was a late to menstruate girl. I was 14 and a half before I got my period. And I was feeling bad. I was like, there's something wrong with me, you know? But I, I cherished those 14 years, you know, without my period. And, um, and then, you know, now I'm on the other end of that. And I realized, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm planning to live for many more decades, um, you know, in a postmenopausal condition. And so if I take the first 14 and the next, let's say, 40 or if, in my case, 50 years based on the longevity of my parents. Um, so that's like 55 or 60 years of my life when I'm not engaged in reproduction. And why is that part of our health not getting the same attention? Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, and, you know, women experience a lot of uh, disease in greater propensity than men. And we respond to different medications with greater or less um, efficacy. So a, a heart attack pill that might work for a man doesn't necessarily work for a woman. Um, and, you know, women will experience mental illness and cognitive decline in greater um, percentages than men. And so, you know, gender medicine is a thing and it's, um, it's something that we need to pay more attention to, uh, because, you know, women are not just more complicated men. So the other thing I've, I've learned is that, uh, for most of the history of medicine, uh, all experiments took place on male mice. And the reason for that is it was considered baseline biology. And then you add on the complexities of women's um, reproductive systems. But really, we're not just men plus. We're actually our own separate biology. And so teasing that out has been a, um, a scientific battle, a financial battle, and a legal battle. And it's only in recent years that the FDA requires testing to take place on female mice and in female mammals. Uh, as well, because, um, you know, it's not okay that a drug gets approved and that a um, an insurance code gets attached to it, uh, because this is what works for men when women are much less likely to respond positively to it. So these are really interesting questions. Um, that, that actually, I also heard that that applies to race considerations, that almost all of the subjects are Caucasian. Yes. And that you have the same sort of biases that, that it, you don't know if it works on that population as well. It's exactly true. And it's one of the big issues in um, genomic studies these days, because, um, you know, while there are enormous efforts around the world to create um, DNA biobanks, uh, the amount of DNA that we have sequenced so far is more than 90 percent white European um, 
in origin. And that is certainly not representative of their global populations. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm aware of efforts in China, efforts in Africa, um, not so in Latin America, strangely, uh, to, um, to develop those biobanks so that we can actually get a read on the human species as a whole. Uh, and not just those people who are aware of and have access to um, genetic testing to uh, to contribute, because it's clear we need a lot more information to manage, you know, a global pandemic and to manage, um, you know, what would be optimum ways to uh, to um, expand population health going forward. So, yeah. So gender medicine is a new term for me. I really like that, and it speaks to so much of the menopause world, for example, like I was beginning to do a book called The Nine Lives of Women. And we're looking at all the sexual and reproductive cycles of women. And we got to menopause and it was basically menopause and after. And (laughs) that there was no fine parsing of like 52 to 65, you know, where there are different sort of step functions in both cognitive capacity, needs, sociocultural transitions, like most women losing their spouses or Mm. losing their spouses earlier, and that there were different um, things that are going on in the joints and flexibility and in the organs and like what you need sexually, sensually past your reproductive capacity. And that also seemed to me a big blind spot. So I'm looking forward to some more sort of studies on on that uh, Mm. also. Oh, well, I hope that you are in touch with a number of these places. I know Yale is one place. University of Texas is one place where they have some brilliant researchers working on um, on women's health, uh, postmenopausal health issues, where um, I think you could find some really interesting data. But, um, you know, the whole concept of postmenopause is really interesting. I mean, back to my point where, you know, a woman seems to be defined by her reproductive life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was perimenopausal, um, gosh, who knows, probably starting in my late 20s, uh, which I only discovered, you know, when I got pregnant, I didn't know that what I was experiencing was considered perimenopausal. Um, And, you know, I have friends who are in their 50s and 60s and even 70s who are still experiencing hot flashes. So the whole idea that menopause is, you know, a couple of years of discomfort is a myth I mean, apparently there are many women for whom it just becomes a permanent part of their lives um, once they stop menstruating on a regular basis. So that's something that. Um, so maybe, maybe it even needs a new name. Maybe it's like a hormonal regulation or hormonal yeah. dysregulation or something like that. And then we can view it as more uh, more like the epigene, I guess, more related to how you live and the interaction between your hormones and your lifestyle or something like that. But that would require, to your earlier point, a lot more detailed sensors, like more look at you as an individual and not relying on a body of data. And I haven't really, have you seen anybody out there who's doing a sensor uh, that could look at your sort of hormones on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Is anybody doing that? Well, you know, there's been a lot of uh, companies that are designing a um, a daily fingerprint prick uh, that could do a daily blood test on you. And um, I don't know who's going to be the first to market. There was one company we were tracking um, because they were on track. And then at the last minute, they kind of bailed and have gone quiet on us. Um, but the idea was you go in your bathroom and you brush your teeth and you just like prick your finger and that blood uh, testing is... Um, the, the analysis is done um, and, and sent to your doctor or to your watch or your phone or whatever you want. Um, that would be really, really interesting. And I think we will discover the extent to which, you know, our, our bodies are like this weird um, combination of like genes and bacteria and hormones and neurotransmitters. And, you know, it's like we're just a sack of, of flesh and bones and chemicals. You know, and this happened to me. I remember kind of understanding all of this around the same time, like understanding my genome and my microbiome uh, at the same time as I was um, experiencing menopause and, you know, losing the amount of estrogen that I was currently using and how 
all of a sudden it was like, wow, there goes my personality, you know, and one uh, bowel movement could completely transform the uh, bacterial balance in my body. And all of a sudden I began to see myself not necessarily as, you know, the Jane that was born in 1961 and that is now in the year 2020, but as this like constantly evolving cloud of, you know, of genes and bacteria and hormones and, you know, and it's like, here's what I am today. But, you know, in another five years, if I transform my, my diet and my, um, you know, my physical exercise and, and, you know, my, my hormones change, I'm, I'm really something very different. And, you know, the thing that is persistent throughout my lifetime is not my body. <laughs> my body is, you know, constantly changing. Um, and that's been a really groundbreaking um, perception change for me. My, that's beautiful. I want to go all the way into what's remaining at the essence. I first want to tell you what I did because it's so resonant. I've never actually heard anyone else talk about how getting the data changed their perception of their identity. When I got my 23andMe, you know, you send in your spit. If you haven't done it yet, whoever's listening, just do it. It's so interesting to get this objective read on you. I send in my spit and they send me back a report. And they say, oh, you're a white person, probably with blue eyes, probably with blonde, brown hair, uh, probably slow as a turtle, but could like go forever athletically, uh, probably a risk taker, you know, which means you're uh, more likely to start companies, do adventurous stuff, have more sex, like all kinds of things. And I, and I, I get this report back and I'm like, these people have never met me. They are mm -hmm. reading my software. They are reading <laughs> my code. And all I have put so many moral judgments or like shame or like how how I should be in the gap between what I am and what I'm not um, on my on things that were indicated in my program of origin. Mm. And all of a sudden I was able to step back from that stuff and say, wow, interesting. You're you're coded for risk taking. Mm -hmm. Don't judge it. Just be it, you know. Um, and it, it also changed my sense of who I was because behind the behind that there was still something that was uniquely uh, and maybe this goes back to the part where, you know, we're still not measuring spirit or spirit molecule, you know, that there's something that's still me that, that I hold as an identity concept beyond those things. It's really rich. I mean, the concept of free will flies in the face of, you know, your genetic determinism. Uh, you know, we have a book called Neolife, 25 Visions for the Future of Our Species. Ooh. And um, yes, do you not have a copy? I have to say I do it. not. How did I not get that? How did I not tell you that? Okay. Yes, I have to send it. You're going to love it. It's a, um, it's a rollicking <laughs> um, collection of essays and um, art and fiction. And um, uh, there's a couple of, you know, where we go talk to a scientist that are sort of as told to. And then there's a fabulous conversation between probably the leading bioengineer of our time, George Church, uh, and a science fiction writer named Ramez Nam. But it's, um, it's, covering all these topics, genetics, neuroscience, longevity, synthetic biology, you know, the future of food, the future of sex, the future of, uh, of death. But there's a researcher named Robert Plowman um, who has an essay in here about um, genetic determinism. And, you know, we are not our genes. However, you know, he has been involved in the UK twin study which has looked at thousands of pairs of twins over decades. And it is so fascinating to see how much is already coded in our genes. And we don't know what the hard line is between, you know, what, what our predisposition is, uh, you know, and where that ends and our free will begins. And I, I suspect that we will spend, you know, the rest of my life grappling with that reality. Um, you know, can and not you only our free will. Yeah, not only our free will, you were talking about the biome earlier. And there's all of this data that says, if you're certain bacteria or parasites inside of you want something like to reproduce themselves or to be fed by mm. you, that they will mm. hijack your behavior. Oh, yeah. you know, so 
that's even that stuff. If you haven't, what is it? Your brain on parasites. That's a really good read because yeah. your brain on parasites is like, oh, I have a, I am a contagious, a cold virus. I would like to spread myself. I'm going to hijack your brain and make you more social in the time between you're contagious and the time you feel symptoms, you know? And so like, really? So am I, I as an introvert now go to parties uh, wow. just because of this virus? Um, so there are things like that in the in the book that also really make you question what, where, who are you as an entity? Absolutely. And this, and then you're back in the realm of, of religion and spirituality. You're back into, I am unending consciousness and the body will mm -hmm. die away. And mm -hmm. maybe that's how you keep coming back into and making sense of the machinery of you. I feel like we are, you know, there's a Buddhist concept. Um, I can't tell you which flavor that uh, we're made up of, of different elements of things that have come before us. I, I, I can't subscribe to the concept of reincarnation. I just can't wrap my head around that. There's just no evidence for that. On the other hand, um, I do see, you know, the twinkle of my grandfather's eye, you know, in my uncle. And I can see, you know, the, somebody smile, you know, passed from, from my dear friend down to her daughter. You know, I, I think there's some playfulness, you know, that has existed in the world before that goes back into some giant cauldron and it all gets, you know, spun around together and, out, you know, comes a new combination of all of these things. And it's kind of the only thing that in my mind connects what we know of science with our um, tradition, our religious and um, and sort of psychiatric or psychological traditions. Um, you know, the, mm -hmm. the concept of the archetype uh, comes back again and again across all these different cultures. Um, so, yeah, I, I think one of the things that we have learned is that dichotomies are are in many cases false, right? I mean, we used to say this person is autistic. Now we say they're on the spectrum. You know, you used to identify as a female, but maybe now you identify as more on a spectrum and maybe you fluctuate um, between, you know, your, your gender identities. Um, you know, maybe who we are as people fluctuates over time. Maybe, maybe it's more like, you know, the planet is breathing, we are breathing, it's in and out, you know, expanding, contracting and changing. This is kind of, I think, a much easier way of understanding our particular journey. You know, it's, we were dealt this hand, these genes, um, you know, this microbiome, uh, the choices that we make impact those things becoming either more pronounced or, or less important, either, you know, uh, helping us or hindering us. And then, you know, when we leave, we leave behind all these things that we accumulated um, and all of the ways that they grew and interacted with the other microbes on the planet for the next generation. That is beautifully said. The teacher that I have, Thomas Hubel, says that you, Jane, and me, we are the cumulative intelligence of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution appearing as us that you have all of the knowledge of prior generations in you and that what you're doing with your life will determine what that information and knowledge is for all future generations. And by zooming out, you see yourself nested in this giant chain of evolution, of consciousness, of beingness, which is a beautiful way. It informed me in a lot of ways. And one way is that not only do I have in my genetic inheritance just as a person alive in 2020, um, my immediate family, but I have the resilience of everybody who's ever survived mm. war, who's ever survived pandemic in me also. Like I know how to handle change. I know how to be in this moment and I don't have to be afraid because I can lean into all of that inherited knowledge. Beautiful. I do want to say this about the brain. Um, okay. And that is that, um, you know, Many animals are born, mammals are born with their brains complete, right? They, they come out uh, of the womb immediately able to stand and suckle and, you know, find food. There's very little adaptation required before the mammal is fully functional. Um, you know, they may not know the best hunting spot or, you know, exactly how to fly, but their brains are essentially fully formed. 
Not so with humans. Our brains are unformed, right? We don't know how to see. We don't know how to speak. We don't understand how to process, you know, touch. Um, you know, touch, touch and smell actually might already be programmed, but there's no evidence that a newborn baby can actually see or knows the that the brain knows how to process the um, the visual inputs that are coming in. Um, and we know that um, sound and vision are both things that are adapted over time. So as the infant is making sounds, they're hearing those sounds and they're getting feedback. So there's that level of cognitive development happening. They're simultaneously getting feedback from their parent, you know, like positive feedback or negative feedback, like, oh, that's a good sound that I like. It's, you know, or it's a bad sound and the child learns not to make that sound. Or ultimately they are able to make a sound that the parent understands. So the baby gets what she wants by making that sound. So the brain is actually this uniquely wide open, ready to respond to inputs organ that is kind of extraordinary. So to your point, yes, you stand on the shoulders of every generation who came before, and your brain is uniquely capable of responding to the environment that you were born into. Um, because all of the inputs you get are going to change the course of evolution and development of your brain. It's a fascinating idea. There's a, a great story. I'm reading a book by one of my dear friends and a brilliant neuroscientist and a brilliant science communicator named um, David Eagleman, um, who, by the way, also has an essay in my book. Um, but he's talking about, he's got a new book out called, um, I think it's called Live, Live Wired. Yeah, exactly. And um, so he talks about a chess family where there's three daughters born into this chess playing family, each one of whom has become even more successful um, as, you know, than, than her older sister. And, you know, the idea being that the family literally focused on chess right from the beginning and all of the data inputs those girls got as they were growing up was around chess, you know, as am I making a good move, a bad move? Will this move make my father happy? Will it, you know, get me the rewards I'm looking for? And if you get that input, that will prime your brain for that output, for that uh, that result. So it, it does explain a lot about um, not just our genetic inheritance, but also our lived experience and how, you know, children of musicians or artists or chess players or computer programmers, you know, are so good, uh, it's because that's the input that they got. And that literally changes how their brain functions. Oh, that's so good. That's if anybody's doing music with their kids, that's the whole Suzuki music method is modeled after that. Well, how could you repeat for non-musicians what musical families do for their kids? Yeah. As we're winding up, I want to ask you the question that I like to close with in general, because this is about creating more freedom in your life, more expansiveness and ease and joy. If you could encourage our listeners to do one thing to create more freedom in their life, what would it be? Oh, well, I... I think this is my pandemic wisdom coming out, but um, it's about letting go. You know, during the pandemic, I got really, I'm an extrovert. I rely enormously on um, the stimulation of other people and their research and their ideas and their, uh, their energy and their humor and their love and their touch. And, you know, letting go of that has been one of the most liberating things that's ever happened to me. It's like when you're meditating, the ability to let go of muscle tension, you know, it's letting go of the things that I thought I couldn't live without has been so rewarding. I feel so much more grounded that um, I recognize what I need, but more to the point, what I don't need. And there were so many things that I thought were essential to my health and well-being, but I don't think they are necessarily going to serve me anymore. And I feel like the more I let go, the clearer my purpose becomes. And so for me, I think the most freeing thing that's that's happened is to be able to let go of more things just again and again and again. That's beautiful. It fits right in 
with your increasing understanding of yourself in the cycles of change also. Mm. Jane, you are a total joy for me. I can't tell you, like the way your mind works and the way it's like coupled with your big heart is, and all the information because the, you know, just the sheer ideas, you're right at the center of this beautiful world that's emerging. So I hope everybody will check out what is currently Neo.life because you're right in the middle of such a wide variety of changes happening for the human species as part of the larger biome of Earth. I hope everyone will learn more about you and what you're doing at neo.life, N-E-O dot L-I-F-E. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world? So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that uh, we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. <laughs>